I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5. Funny, I got a, I've got a little thank you note sitting in my pulpit here, thanks to one of the kids there. Um, that's, a, that's a pleasant surprise. I'll have to read it later. Romans chapter 5, one of the great passages in all the Bible. Romans chapter 5, we're going to read verses 1 through 11. It is the very Word of God, something not to be considered lightly, that we have access to God's own Word. Let us hear it now, even as we hear from God. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. May God add His blessing to the reading of His Word. Would you pray with me now? Almighty God, we, we praise You this morning and we recognize that we can sing of a wonderful cross, and only you could create such a miracle to take that Roman torture stick and turn it into something that is a symbol of all of our hopes, the symbol of our whole salvation, the symbol of such joy and gladness. You did that, Lord. You did it even through the crucifixion of your own dear Son who died, was buried, and who rose on the third day, who rose from the dead alive, was seen by so many, and then ascended into heaven in order to return again to judge the living and the dead. Holy Father, we pray by your Holy Spirit even today, you would help us then to cherish this cross, to cherish all that has occurred, even as you have judged sin at the cross, 
judging it even as Jesus was the sin bearer. We thank you that Jesus was the righteous one and that those who believe in him have his righteousness credited to their account. And we thank you that that truth, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, has been such a comfort even from the 16th century till now, even from the 1st century until now. I pray, Lord, that you would do a deep work in us and that we would cherish the distinctives of the gospel. We pray that you would use us in the lives of those whom we care about, even lost loved ones, family members, co-workers, neighbors, folks near and far. We pray that the gospel would go forward, for it is the only hope in this world. We ask your forgiveness for the ways that we have trusted in princes. But we do pray for them. We pray for leaders over us. We pray for our mayor, Jody Gondek, and our premier, Daniel Smith, and our prime minister, Justin Trudeau. We pray that they would act righteously and not wickedly. We pray that they would repent of their sins and that they themselves, individually, personally, would be delivered from the wrath to come. But in the meantime, Lord, we do pray that they would be thwarted in any attempts to act in wicked ways, and that even in ways that they don't really understand, that they would do things that would be in keeping with your law and your righteousness. Lord, we do pray that you would grant us comfort in this church, There are many, many people who are hurting here. People that grieve over their families, that grieve over their children, their young children, their adult children, grieve over marriages, grieve over difficulty in those marriages, grieve over loss of work or not enough work, grieve over the lost dreams and prospects that they hope to have that have not come true. Single folks who are grieving the fact that they are unmarried, Married folks that are grieving over the fact that their marriages are not what they had hoped. Lord, we pray that in the midst of that grief that they would actually turn and see your great grace and love and that they would rejoice in you and be content. They would have that rare jewel and that they would trust you for the future. Trust you that you are able to create miraculous changes and take even a Roman torture stick and turn it into the wonderful cross. We pray for those who are hurting. We pray for Hannah and Akeen with the loss of their baby. We pray for others in their grief, even in illness, even in disability. Lord, we pray that you would comfort them. And Lord, we pray that the gospel would go forth from this church. You would help us all in our cowardice. That you would give us courage to simply be who we are, to be your children, to declare your truth, to hold fast your gospel. Make us a humble people. Humble us under your mighty hand that you would exalt us in due course. Lord, there's there's no place for us to be proud. You have given us everything. Help us then to cherish you, to worship you, and even to receive the gift of your word, even from your very own spirit. Do this now. Make us a grateful, humble, and worshiping people through your word. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.
Well, as Josh said, it is Reformation Sunday. Uh, It's in keeping with October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg Church door. And so that generally understood as the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Um, It's interesting that there is the thought that, that actually maybe Martin Luther wasn't actually uh, really born again in 1517, but actually a couple years later. That's a debate. The one thing is, when you think about this history, and I would urge you, each of you, to be familiar with this history, when you look at the history, when you think about the 16th century, maybe not something you think about very often, but you know, even the kind of the History Channel version, the 16th century was a bleak world. There was death everywhere, short life expectancy, disease, you know, the bubonic plague going across Europe. People had to have large families because you you didn't expect many of the children to survive. It was so bleak. One of the things I do in my study is I'll look at, at the artwork of a certain era And some of the artists of the 16th century really illustrate how bleak it was. And so Hieronymus Bosch, if you know that name, he has these terrifying paintings describing the judgment of God. And just, you know, it's it's meted out on this sinful world. And it's filled with demons, filled with horrors. Same for another artist is Peter Bruegel. Or an even more well-known one is Albrecht Dürer. Dürer has a, a, a picture of a knight. And he's riding across and he's looking splendid in all of his armor. And he's riding along and all he's riding through are these skeletons. And he's riding, the, the, the symbolism is he is riding closer and closer to his death. So that was what was before everyone. Horror. The horror of death, even in their art. The horror was real. Life, expe- like life expectancy was short. Just imagine. No antibiotics. Right? Some of you, you know, went to the drugstore and got antibiotics this week. Well, you don't have any. The little sniffle that you get. You know, the little feeling under the weather. No, well, that, that means that, you know, it's touch and go whether or not you're going to die in a week. No pain meds. You know, did you have a Tylenol in the last week? You know, probably. Yeah, but there's nothing. So pain and death. Martin Luther, of course, think about the Reformation. He was that Roman Catholic monk who was the catalyst for the Protestant Reformation in 1517. He said this. He said, Experience has proved the toad to be endowed with valuable qualities. If you run a stick through three toads, and after having dried them in the sun, apply them to any persistent, pestilent tumor, they draw out all the poison and the malady will disappear. Is that how you fix things? You get out, you know, catch a couple toads, put them on a stick, dry them in the sun. Of course, uh, I'm told that Hollywood celebrities, now they smoke toad venom. Uh, as a hallucinogenic. So, I don't know. Maybe we're in the dark ages. 
Um, you know, it's, it's pretty strange. But people lived in terror of God. And of course, back in the Garden of Eden, you know this, that even when Adam sinned, he and his wife Eve, they hid themselves. Why? Why did they hide themselves after they sinned? Well, it's because, as Adam said, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So this fear that is more of a terror of God is something that's a real thing. Sinners have been afraid of God ever since. And there's a sense in which it is rightly so. At the beginning of Paul's letter to the Romans, just after what Josh read in Romans 1 and verse 18, we have then that classic text that articulates this. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So it was not just the 16th century, but in the 21st century where people have been scared of God. I've seen, I've seen lots of big, strong, powerful men reduced to stuttering and being just sheepish cowards all because the topic of God came up. Just start talking about religion. And these big strong men, are, uh, you know, they're looking for the door because they are scared to talk about God. And so we have to be very clear about this situation. Because mankind is then in a position of hostility against God. And even more importantly, God is in a position of hostility toward mankind. Fallen mankind. Mankind who are rebels. And that's the greater and more terrifying issue. So men and women, boys and girls, since the first century, have had to recognize that they are enemies of God. Martin Luther said of his own view on this, looking back, he said, I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. And Luther says, thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. You want to understand the Reformation. You want to understand the faith of the Bible. You have to understand that kind of war that's going on. That man is at war with God. Not at peace with God. And and that's the question to begin with as you're sitting there. Is to honestly ask yourself, are you at 
peace with God? Or are you still at war with Him? Or maybe, maybe you're trying to kid yourself or kid those around you, and you're actually lying about your standing before God. You see, Luther, like Paul, it comes from Paul, he admitted that he was God's enemy. And so, in Romans chapter 5 and verse 10, Paul concedes, he says, for if while we were enemies. He's conceding. We were enemies. This is critical to understand. Even in my own story, before I became a Christian as a young man, two years out of high school, I actually felt as if God was against me, chasing me, corralling me, making my whole life as I thought it at that time, making my whole life unlucky. It's like, why isn't anything working out? seems I'm unlucky at everything. And I felt that there was no getting away from him. No getting around him. And I didn't understand until I started reading these passages in Romans that I was God's enemy. And the, the fault was not God's. It was mine. What was needed? How could I, or you, or Martin Luther have an end of this holy war with God. Well, of course, we needed, I needed, you needed, Luther needed to be reconciled to Him. We need to be reconciled to God, and more importantly for God to be reconciled to us. And so this is the first thing to recognize is that we outside of Christ, are enemies of God. Now in this church, maybe that's a foregone conclusion. Maybe you, maybe you understand and believe that. But it's easy for us to minimize the hostility between us and God to show how greatly we need this reconciliation. But that's it. Paul says five, in verse 10, we were enemies. That has to be clear. And so all of the artwork of the, of the medieval age depicting God as an enemy of man and man as an enemy of God, they actually have the picture quite right. And our age is like, oh, we don't want to think bad thoughts. We, I, that makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, I don't like that stuff. You know, I want to go, I want to be happy at church. Well, there is reason to rejoice, which we'll get to, but we have to kind of understand the bad news first. But what does it say then in verse 10 as well? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. This is reconciliation. This is the idea of enemies being no longer at odds with one another, but being at peace with one another. You know, scholars and philosophers, they've created thousands, 
maybe millions of theories about how man can have peace. You know, world peace, peace of mind, you know, mindfulness and peace, that's the latest, right? You know, just give peace a chance. You know, all these slogans. And what? They haven't succeeded, have they? That's the industry right now, is to try to, try to placate troubled minds that are not at peace. That's the diplomacy of world governments, to try to bring nations together so that they are at peace. All failures. Paul states very clearly the necessity for us to have peace with God. He says it in verse 10. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. How? It is by what is required. It is a necessity. It required the death of His Son. The death of His Son was not optional. It was not... There, there was no other way. It was absolutely necessary. Because in war, in war, for one side to win, the other side must lose. And the just war of God against rebel sinner enemies, it required an execution for the war crimes. And I know you haven't thought of yourself like that. It's too dark to think of yourself as a war criminal against God. Think of those, those Nazi hunters after World War II. They scoured the world to find men who had committed war crimes, but who were in hiding. And these guys, they would hide as school teachers or car mechanics or property developers. In other words, they were just folks like you and me. Right? They just they had regular jobs, lived regular lives. But they were war criminals. And I, and I say this, we, we have to kind of get a grasp on this enmity between God and man and the necessity of reconciliation and what it cost for us then to value it and esteem it. Because we, I believe, we have such a weak understanding of the holiness of God that we think of the sinner outside of, of Christ. And, and for me to, me to think of that person in the terms of a war criminal, we would think that's a horrific thought. And you might even thinking, Clint's really talking extreme and melodramatic. But you got to see, this is the level of enmity which God has toward His enemies. The theme of the series is the holy war. And this is the case. We have to see that enmity. Sinners have committed not merely crimes against humanity, but something deeper. You sinner, me sinner. Not crimes against humanity, but crimes against divinity. And so how, how can you get your record expunged? How can you get those crimes dealt with? Well, the only way for enemies to be reconciled in this way that have committed these war crimes is by death. 
but it's not your death. That's, that's not good enough. There's many people think, oh, well, everybody who dies goes to heaven, that you're justified by your death. No, we need to be reconciled by the death of the perfect one, the incarnate Son, Jesus Christ. Paul explains this earlier in chapter 5. Just look up at verse 6. Verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for who? The ungodly. That doesn't seem to fit. You would think he died for the godly. The ungodly aren't qualified. You'd think the godly would be qualified for Christ to die for them. No, no. While we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. And, and then Paul gets into it. He explains it all. He talks about then the logic of that. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. You don't go sacrificing yourself for someone who's, who's a wicked person. You sacrifice yourself for someone who is of value. Someone who is esteemed. Someone who is noble. And you lay down your life for them. And that's what Paul's saying. Yeah, you would, you'd barely sa- you know, die for that kind of person. For a good person, one would dare even to die. But verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners. So there's no change. He's not waiting for you to change your status. And then he's going to die for you. You're still a sinner. You're a rebel. You're a war criminal against God And while you're still a war criminal, Christ died for us. It is is an amazing expression of love. It is utterly undeserved. And he says then, verse 9, and this is a Christian view looking back, since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. See, God's war is about justice. And there's no peace without it. You can't have peace unless justice has been served. And so Christ's death applied to the sinner, applied to you or applied to me, It justifies you. It sets you right before God. It declares a person to be innocent before God. That's what it means to be justified. It's not just that, oh yes, my sins are forgiven. It is then to be declared righteous which is another way of, being, of saying you're declared innocent. And all of a sudden, you should be having then a, a bit of a mental calculation of how can a war criminal be declared innocent? That does not compute. But then you start seeing the uniqueness of the gospel, the uniqueness of what Christ has accomplished. Because, of course, this reconciliation 
occurs. There is no peace without it. We can't create our own peace with God on our own terms. It has to be something that He creates and receives. So how is it then that the war criminal can be declared innocent? Well, in my Sunday school class, we were, we were just talking again about our gospel partnership class and talking about baptism, and I, and I basically went through this, this little, little paradigm that was taught to me by David Linden, some of you guys know, who's a Presbyterian missionary uh, who used to live in Calgary. And the first thing you've got to see is that this is not sociological and is not anthropological. It is utterly theological. It's about you and God. It's toward God. So how can we be reconciled to God? What are the requirements? Well, it requires the necessity of the death of his own son. But all of us have a problem, a twofold problem. You've heard me say this before. We have something that we've got to get rid of somehow but we lack something we need. So how, how are we going to do this? You're a war criminal. You have all of these war crimes that somehow you've got to get rid of them. But even if you had got, got rid of them, how could you ever do all the good things that are required to be acceptable to God, to God? So you have something you need to get rid of and you lack something you need. Well, the answer, of course, is the take and the give. Through the death of his son, he takes the war criminality of yours and puts it on Christ. Do you see the horror of the cross now? It can only be wonderful if you see the wrath of God against the war crimes that Jesus bore. And he bears those war crimes and he is punished for them. But then they're taken away from you. You don't then have to stand on the day of judgment with your war crimes and then receive the wrath of God for them. They are taken off of you. And they are put on Christ. But as I said many times in the pulpit and in the class today, if that's all that was needed, why didn't Jesus just come and die on the cross, incarnate, die on the cross? Why come as a baby? Why, why bother with the childhood and the teen years and as a young man and the carpentry and every other thing? Why, why bother? Because he could just go straight to the cross and do the job. But no. Well, we see that as the Son took on humanity, he then obeys. He obeys his Father, his Heavenly Father, as a child. He doesn't have a 20-year-old's obedience, but he does have a child's obedience, and a teenager's obedience, and a 20-year-old's obedience, and a 25-year-old's obedience, and a 33-year-old's obedience. And he was, as Paul says in, in Philippians, he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So he's obedient going to receive the punishment for the war crimes of others. And in his obedience then, he accrues for himself righteousness because he does have clean hands. He does have a clean heart. 
There is no sin in him. And so then he renders himself as the obedient sacrifice. And just then as our sins are taken away because they're put on him, Christ's own righteousness, all that accrual, if I want to use the language that they used in the 16th century, all of this treasury of merit, it is merited by Christ. Not me, not you. It is merited by Christ and is credited to the believer's account. So you have something you must get rid of. You lack something you need. He takes away our war criminality, but He gives us and credits us with righteousness. This is called, of course, the great exchange. It is the Reformation theme. The great exchange. My sin on Christ, Christ's righteousness on me. It should be something you're familiar with. Speak of the glory of the great exchange. Josh read from Romans 1, 16 and 17. And you can just turn back there just quickly. So you're, this, is, this is key. I'll say it again. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. To be declared righteous by God only comes by faith in Christ. Luther was looking at this passage, and, and he, as I said before in the earlier quote, he thought the righteousness of God could only be understood in this terrifying way. If God is righteous, that means He's so pure, and then He's going to smack me down because I'm impure, I'm unrighteous. And so Paul's looking at this passage, he's trying to figure it out, and he said, I, I beat importunately upon Paul, he said. He's just pounding the Bible, trying to figure it out until he discovered that in the gospel, by faith alone, we receive Christ's own righteousness and God takes away our sin penalty. There was no need as the hucksters were doing from the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century, there was no need to, to put money into a box in order then to somehow get a righteousness certificate for yourself or for someone else in order to get them out of purgatory. You don't need these schemes. I shared the story in, in my earlier class when I was in China Western China visiting the Tibetan monastery and seeing the, the bills, the money being put into, into the dish in front of the large Buddha in order to somehow, you're paying to get a blessing, you're paying to help you 
You know, you're, you do this act of righteousness and you get the blessing. All of these religions based on this. Nothing. None of them. Deal with the problems of taking away my sin and giving me what I lack, which is righteousness. We're still faced with the issue of death. Why death? Why did there need to be a death? Because as I said, there had to be an execution of the enemy. Capital punishment for war crimes against God. The wages of sin is death. But consider that Jesus is the substitute for enemies. The enemy is reconciled to God, and God is reconciled in His justice against His enemy. Turn to Romans 3. If you're familiar with the book of Romans, these are familiar passages, but if you're not, these then are going to be revolutionary. Romans chapter 3, I'll begin in verse 23. Speaking of our war criminality. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, by contrast, by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. In other words, this wrath-receiving and wrath-exhausting sacrifice. God put Him forward that way to be received by faith. You, you trust in Him. You believe in Him. Then this, this latter half of verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness. In other words, how just is God? Is He just or is He a bad judge? Is He a good one? Is He, is he a righteous and just judge? Well, this is going to show it. In the, in, because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. Verse 26, most critical. It was to show His righteousness at the present time. So how is it that He's showing His righteousness if He's pouring out wrath on Jesus, the innocent one? How is that good? How is that righteous? Well, it's only righteous if Jesus is bearing those sins for others. They had to be punished. They must be punished. But he says this was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. If we do not have a just God, we have no God at all. He must be judged. He must punish the war crimes. We would never want war crimes to go unpunished. We would say that's wicked. He must be just. But then it says, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That includes these people that have committed these war crimes against God. How can they be justified? How can they be treated as innocent? How is that possible? It doesn't seem right. But only in the marvel of the gospel is it right. Because God spared no wrath when He poured it out on His own Son. So when you read something like Romans 5.10, that we are reconciled by 
the death of his son. And you know, you've been a Christian for a while, you've been going to church, you're like, oh yeah, death, cross, yep, got that, on to the next thing. The horror of the cross is lost on us. And it's not just the horror of the Romans, as horrific as what they did to Jesus was. It's the horror of the wrath of God against the war criminality that was fighting against Him. And God will not suffer it. He will not put up with it. And so He bears the full weight of wrath upon Christ because He's a good and just judge. But then, in the whole scheme, you see, while we were still sinners, while we're enemies, God initiated all this, and He's able then to declare as innocent, to declare righteous, to justify sinners, simply because they hide themselves in Christ. They're hidden in Christ. They're like, oh, Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Innocent. No stain. Now up to this point, if you're a Christian believer, you've been at this church for a while, you're tempted to think, yeah, okay, I know this. This is one of those. This is for those other people, right? This is for those people that are new or not Christians or whatever. I know this. I believe this. This isn't anything new. And yeah, you're, you're correct in that. But I believe in this church and in the churches in this city and the churches in this country, I believe there is a, a great deficiency in our understanding of this reconciliation. And I see this deficiency playing out in two ways in churches among Christians. The first is that many Christians live their Christian life and they live acting as if things are stacked against them. You know, and you might not come right out and say it, But deep in your heart, you feel that somehow God is against you. Now you might think, oh well, but I deserve it because I don't deserve anything. But you think that God is against you as a Christian believer. That's the first deficiency. The second deficiency is that you lack the joy of a reconciled enemy. The relief of one. The sense of escape of one. And you you don't think that God Himself is actually happy to be reconciled to you. And so thinking that God is against you on the one hand, Or, on the other, disbelieving that God is actually happy to welcome you as a friend, to to welcome you as his own kin. That marks most of us here. Most of the time. 
And, and so this is why getting back to these basics, it's very important to ask the question then again, is God your enemy? Is he your enemy? Or do you have peace with God? Are you, have, is there a declared, objective, true peace between you and God? Is God your enemy? Or the other question is, do you think that God is grumpy with you? <laughs> right? This week? Is that how you live? Oh, God's, things aren't going good, so God must be grumpy with me. And we start having wrong views of God, and we actually start getting wrong views of the gospel, and we don't actually think that there has been a reconciliation, and we, we descend into some kind of religion like all the religions of the world. Well, I guess I've got to do righteous things in order to get the blessings. I've got to put the money in the plate in order to get the blessings back. I got to go to the temple. The more I go to the temple, the more blessings I'll get. Oh, I guess I didn't go to the temple enough. I didn't get enough blessing. Paul says in Romans 5:11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation we have not affected the reconciliation we have not defeated God and so made peace we have not somehow overcome the enmity of our war criminality and so made peace with God no 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 he is the one who has affected the reconciliation and it is ours to receive. Yesterday at the men's breakfast, I spoke on the topic of pride. And I, and I mentioned just different kind of species of pride or the way that pride manifests itself. And one of the things that I, that I said, and, and it applied really to me because I, I think I've struggled with this a lot, is, is that we can be too proud to receive too proud to receive help, too proud to receive grace, too proud to, to, to take any, anything from anyone. And, and I kind of got into it and I, I discussed just how we can be too proud to receive because if we receive something from someone else, it implies that we are insufficient or that we are weak or that we're needy and we don't like that. So I'll, you're trying to be nice to me and give me something. And I'm like, oh, it's okay. I don't need that. But really, it's because I'm insecure because I don't want to act like I'm needy. Instead of just taking it, recognizing, yeah, I am needy. Thanks. Thanks for being so generous to me. And it's the same with reconciliation. It's the same with the gospel. It's the same with all that God has done in Christ. We can be too proud to simply receive it to receive the reconciliation. I'm not God's enemy, and He is not mine anymore. Why am I acting like it? Oh, well, you know, I'm not really wanting to receive the full reconciliation because then that would put me in a weak position. <laughs> You're weak, and I'm weak. We need to get over ourselves. And once we receive this reconciliation, 
then the only response then is to rejoice in such a victor. To rejoice in such a conqueror. To rejoice in His mercy. Because He didn't have to do it this way. He could have, with all of the, the horror of the 16th century, He could have smacked us down and had every right to, but He didn't. And then that we know that God is happy too. Look at Romans 5.8. But God shows His, what? His love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the amazing thing of this God. Is that He is a just judge. And he will suffer no competitors. And he will punish all war criminality because he must. And yet there is this feature, if I can put it that way, this feature to God's character that he can also have this love. In fact, we can even say God is love. And it is that love even set against his justice And this love then that initiates while we were still sinners. You weren't lovable. I wasn't lovable. There was nothing in us that commends us to be lovable. It is just purely from God, His own love. And so this love initiated it all. I don't care if you're a Calvinist but you've got to see God is the initiator. If you think it's, oh, well, you know, at some point I'm going to, you know, yes, I I started loving God. You have to realize, no, God initiated His love first. We love Him because He first loved us, John says. His love set the plan in motion to execute His justice, but also justify us ungodly enemies. And He did it through a sacrifice of which there could be none greater. His own cherished dear Son. As Luther explained when he discovered in Romans 1.16 the truth that He could be declared righteous by God by placing His faith in Christ and in, in Jesus' righteousness alone, Luther said this. He said, quote, I extolled my sweetest word, the word righteousness, with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before hated the word, the righteousness of God. Thus that place in Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. To paradise. That's the question for you this morning. I don't, I don't really care how religious you are or how churchy you are. It doesn't really matter. The question is, have you passed through that gate? From an antagonist to an ally. From, from a foe 
to a friend, from an enemy to an heir. And so, by way of application, friends, I would just urge you, Christians, you need to understand the salvation that you enjoy and the depths from which you have been delivered. And so it's helpful to recognize what the Bible says about your life, what it would be, what it was outside of Christ, and recognize how dark and how hostile it really was. Because Christians get in this, they get, they get thinking this after a while. They get thinking, yeah, I'm a Christian because I'm more clever than other people. Don't they get this? Don't they, can't they figure this out on Facebook? Don't they see my post? It makes all this sense. They're dumb and I'm smart. No, no, you are a war criminal. And while you were still a war criminal, Christ loved you and interjected. It's a miracle of grace. We have, to, we have to get clear on that, especially this crowd that thinks it knows it all. And I'm talking about me. Secondly, if we understand the hostile terms that we had before God, then we will see how dramatic God's display of love is in reconciling them. A Christian is a reconciled enemy. And Jesus, you know, he had said that the one forgiven much loves much. And sometimes our love is cold because we've kind of forgotten. <laughs> yeah, we actually needed to be forgiven by God. The more honest self-evaluation will then correct a few things. We'll be more happy. We'll be more grateful. And then we'll be more clear in our mission here. We'll be more clear about the enemies of God and about God's offer of mercy to them. Right now, Christians are really getting sharp on who the enemies of, of the church and the enemies of God are, but we're almost forgetting. We're almost forgetting the whole gospel that Christ's love is an offer of mercy even towards those war criminals. We're losing it. And instead, we're wanting and saying, yeah, God, I want you to cut down those enemies because they're my enemies. And we forget He offered us mercy. He loved us while we were still sinners. And if we believe Believe this, even in our world, our world can be scary and bleak too. But if we believe this, then a believer, that means you. If you're a Christian believer, that means me. That means we can rejoice at our escape and we can rejoice in our rescuer. As Paul said in Romans 5.1, we can conclude, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not we hope to have, not it, ha it comes and goes. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's today, 
tomorrow and for eternity. That is the wonder of Reformation truth that is simply the truth of the gospel. And that is for you. That is for me. That is for all of us today. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you for your great mercy as you have reminded us that we love you because you first loved us and you loved us while we were still sinners. Oh Lord, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to rejoice as reconciled enemies looking to you and seeing your joy and your delight in having reconciled us to yourself. Do this in our midst, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a couple of reminders. Uh, tomorrow is the, is the Reformation bash. And so just encourage you, you got kids, bring them along. Everybody's welcome. Also today, it wasn't announced before, but we've got a newcomer's lunch. And even if you're not really a new newcomer, feel free to come on down and we'll talk about the church and you can ask questions. But what about us now from this point on? With this message of reconciliation, you know, Paul Paul gave that even to that crazy church in Corinth. And he said in 2 Corinthians 5, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the good news, friends, and there is nothing like it in the whole world. Go in peace with that good news. You're dismissed.